I'd like you to open your Bibles today, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And we're looking once again at the opening verses in this chapter. And we find Matthew affirming, as he has throughout this Gospel account, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, the one who was promised. And there's a question that people often ask today. I mean, there are lots of people asking the question, who is Jesus? Just who is this person called Jesus? And if people aren't asking that question, there are still people that are trying to tell us who Jesus is. You can turn on your television and you can watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, and you'll hear people on there, supposed religious scholars, that tell us who Jesus is, but really what they try to do is to put doubt in people's minds that the historical record that we have in the Bible about Jesus is actually the truth. I, I want you to do yourself a favor. I want you to save all of the grief and despair and the puzzlement that you get from watching those kinds of shows and just refuse to watch those anymore because they're not going to give you the truth about who Jesus is. The only truth, the only record that we have of the life of Jesus Christ is what we find in the Bible, and the Bible, whatever it says, is the truth of who Jesus is. Now, a lot of people that have come to me and they've been confused by what they hear on television. They watch those programs and... Again, almost without exception, what they try to do is to put in your mind doubt about the truth of what the Bible record is concerning Jesus or just about any topic that they touch that's on the Bible, they're wrong in some way. Well, in the Bible, though, you also find people that were in doubt about Jesus. Uh, Jesus faced a religious establishment that questioned every move that he made, and they refused to believe all of the proofs that he gave, all the evidence that we have in Scripture, the things that Jesus did. They refused to believe those things because they knew, the religious leaders at the time knew that if they believed in Jesus... It meant that they would have to give up their prestige. Uh, They were the knowledgeable leaders. And if Jesus was who he said that he was, it meant they must surrender to his authority. And I would submit to you that when you see scholars on television today, that they're really not interested in finding out who Jesus really is. And they're unwilling to admit that he is the Savior, that he is God, because to admit that is to admit that they also must surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ. And what that would do is turn their academic understanding upside down. And so they won't admit who Jesus really is. But these are not the same kinds of doubts that we find here in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Those doubts, people that you, these scholars, religious scholars, their doubts come from a hardened heart of unbelief. That's a heart of someone that's never really known the saving grace of God. And so their doubts are just simply hardened unbelief. But the story that we have here in Matthew chapter 11 is not that kind of doubt. Because here is doubt that comes from one who is a believer. This comes from one who very clearly announced that Jesus was the Savior. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This doubt comes from one that Jesus said was the greatest prophet that ever lived. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. In Matthew chapter 11, we'll read the first six verses of this chapter. Matthew chapter 11. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. 
Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto him, unto them rather, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Open it to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my message this morning is The Doubting Baptist. This is part number two of the message that I began last week. And I'm referring to John the Baptist. And he was called the Baptist. And I want you to get this because you have to be a very astute Bible student to understand this. He was called the Baptist because he baptized. And there's another great mystery of the scriptures that are solved, and you won't have to ask that one in Sunday morning forum class. John the Baptist was called the Baptist because he baptized. He was given a very special mission by God to baptize people, that is, repentant people, people that had become believers in the Messiah. But most importantly, John was given the privilege of baptizing the Son of God. And so in that sense, he can certainly be called the Baptist. He is the Baptist because he baptized Christ. And it was the baptism of Jesus that inaugurated his ministry. Uh, Jesus' three-year ministry began at his baptism and then ended when he went to the cross and then arose from the dead. And John is the one who introduced Jesus to the world. From his birth, from the time to the time that Jesus was 30 years old, he was preparing for ministry. He was growing and he was learning. He was becoming wiser. And all of that was a part of his humanity. And then one day, when Jesus was ready to show his deity, he started into his public ministry. And the event that started him into that ministry was when he went to John for baptism. And then after that, Jesus began his teaching, his miracles of of healing and the miracle of salvation. But first, he had to come to John for baptism. Now, in the last message, we looked at the career of John the Baptist. Uh, John was chosen before he was born for this very special work that God wanted him to do. The Old Testament had prophesied about John and it said that there was one who would come and prepare the way for Christ that he would be one who would preach a gospel of repentance and he would let Israel know that this one who had been promised for so many thousands of years had now arrived and John was that messenger sometimes we call him the harbinger of Christ and harbingers that simply means someone who announces beforehand the arrival or the approach of another. And so that's what John did. He was called by God to do this. He knew what he was to do. He was sure of what God called him to do. And so as a fiery preacher, John carried out God's orders perfectly. Matthew introduced us to John the Baptist in the third chapter, and his purpose was not to elevate John. His purpose is not to show us what a great man that John the Baptist was, but it was to show that John fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, that there was a person that would come, that there is a prophet that would come in the spirit of Elijah, and that prophet would introduce the Christ. 
So John is put into this story about the Messiah, into the story about Jesus, to show that Scripture was fulfilled. There had to be a John before Jesus could come. And so when John came, so did Jesus. And that's the whole purpose of why John the Baptist is in this story. Ultimately, it's to point us to Jesus Christ and to show that all the Scriptures are fulfilled about him. So you can see from that just how important that John's ministry was. And if you're interested in knowing the full history of John the Baptist, uh, I would refer you back to last week's message because we went all the way from the time that John was born up until the time that he died. But what happens in this particular scripture in Matthew 11 surprises somewhat uh, because this great man of God, this one that Jesus would call in verse number 11, the greatest man that had ever been born, he began to have doubts about Jesus. Now, today I want to explain more particularly to you about those doubts, the, the reason that John had doubts. And then in the next message, we'll talk about what Jesus did about that and how he took the doubts away. So today we're going to look at the concern of John the Baptist. The concern, what were the concerns? Why was he asking questions? Well, John, again, had made that great announcement that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And I hope that you understand why that was important because the Lamb of God is the one who was typified by the Passover Lamb. In the Old Testament, we have the story of the Passover Lamb when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. And that Passover Lamb was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who would offer himself, give his own blood as a covering for our sins. And and in the second verse here of Matthew 11, it says, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? The first clue that we have about John's doubt is the word prison in verse number 2. John was in prison, and so his circumstances put him on the road to doubt. So we'll talk about that first. There was doubt about his circumstances. I remember that John has been called by God. He was commissioned by God. There was a very clear, distinct moment in John's life when he knew that God had something very special for him to do. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when that was, not the exact point that John realized what God wanted him to do, but sometime as a young man, God called him, and then John went out into the wilderness and began to live there in the wilderness of Judea. Now, we do know that John was a little bit older than Jesus. He was about six months older. And so if Jesus came to be baptized by John at about the age of 30 years old, then somewhat over 30 years old probably, John the Baptist began to preach. And every time that he preached, people would come to hear him. And John began to build a reputation as a fiery preacher and as a prophet of God. He became very popular with the people And so he was always out there preaching, and people were always coming to hear him. In chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the Scripture says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized in Jordan, confessing their sins. So John was out there building this great ministry. The Holy Spirit was in his preaching because people came and they heard and they believed, and John baptized them. And I want you to notice in verse number 6 of that third chapter, it says the people confessed their sins. 
and people do not confess their sins and they don't believe unless the Holy Spirit first is working on them. So John had this mighty power of the Holy Spirit and God was at work in a very powerful way every time that John preached the word. Now I know that uh, all of us, as uh, those of us that are preachers of God's Word, would surely love to have a visitation of God's Holy Spirit on us like John the Baptist had. I mean, what we, we would like to have that, not because we want to build huge ministries and not because we're looking for fame at what we do, but because we know when God's Word is preached, this is the way that people come to understand that Jesus is the Savior. And we want the Holy Spirit to work in people's hearts so that people can be saved. That's what John preached, and so people responded, and by that, John knew without doubt that he had been called into ministry. Now, just to show you that John was not interested in popularity, uh, it wasn't the popularity of preaching that really put him out there trying to gain a name for himself. John wasn't interested in that because we find that he was willing to give up that fame. He was willing to turn his disciples over to Jesus, and that's exactly what should have happened. When the ministry of Jesus began and John had announced him as the Messiah, when he was inaugurated at his baptism, from that point on, John the Baptist's ministry should have begun to decrease, and that's what it did. And he was willing for that to happen, and he announced that it would happen. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. And he also said, listen to Jesus because he is preferred before me. He's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. But what John was not prepared for was the way, just how his ministry would end. Now, he kept on preaching. His preaching ministry was not as powerful after Jesus came on the scene. His fame began to be eclipsed by Jesus, but John didn't stop preaching. And so we can look over there in chapter 14 and we find that John was still preaching. He was still preaching a powerful message and it didn't matter who that message affected. Even if it was the ruler of his country, John still preached against his sin and it was that kind of preaching that landed John the Baptist in the prison. And as I described to you last week, he was thrown into a dungeon. He was in the area that's around the Dead Sea, a very hot, dry, arid climate. And John, who was this outdoorsman, the one that lived out in the, in the daytime uh, under the sun, and then at night slept underneath the stars, this man was now put into the prison in the darkness of a dungeon. And so I would think that he began to wonder that why after he had served God so faithfully, after he had done everything that God had required of him, when he was fearlessly preaching, when he was doing everything that God said to do, why was he now in a dungeon? And so we find John in a point of despair. He'd seen God do great things through him, but now circumstances caused him to doubt. And he doubted, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing when I said Jesus is the Messiah? And so I think that we can understand that doubt. Uh, John was in a state of depression. The surroundings fueled his doubts. And quite frankly, he was disappointed that after all he had done, and after all had God done had done through him, and after he had faithfully preached the word and done what God wanted, where was the relief? Has God forgotten him? Why is he now in the prison? And it had to be on his mind that if Jesus truly was the Messiah, why hadn't he done something about this imprisonment? The Messiah would certainly have the power to do it. 
The great 18th century commentator Matthew Henry wrote, John's doubt might arise from his own present circumstances. He was a prisoner and might be tempted to think, if Jesus be indeed the Messiah, whence is it that I, his friend and forerunner, am brought into this trouble and am left so long in it, and he never looks after me, he never visits me, nor sends to me, inquires not after me, neither does he sweeten my imprisonment or hasten my enlargement? And if I wanted to paraphrase Matthew Henry, give you one short statement there, he was saying, if Jesus is the Messiah, doesn't he care? Despair among suffering prophets was not uncommon. John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, that great prophet Elijah. And Elijah also had moments of despair. You look back into the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, you'll find the story of Elijah, and you'll see there that he was miraculously fed by ravens in the wilderness. He was fed by the widow of Zarephath. He went and raised her son from the dead. He defeated 850 false prophets on Mount Carmel when God rained down fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice. But after seeing all of that, when Elijah's life was threatened by Jezebel... He was scared, and he ran back into the desert, and he asked God to take his life. He didn't want to die at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel. So he said, God, take my life. And he was afraid, and he was wondering, why, God, why after all of this, after I've done so many things and you've done so many things through me, why does it all have to end like this? And so one of God's greatest prophets doubted when he was overcome with bad circumstances. And that might be exactly where you are today. You may be in bad circumstances. Your job may be gone. Perhaps your income has been uh, cut. Your house might be in foreclosure. You can't see the end of that distress because you've been there so long. And it might be your health. You're in pain and you're just looking for a little bit of relief. And you're thinking, I'm a child of God. Why does this happen to me? Why, God? Why me? Why, Why does it happen? I have been so faithful to you. And when that happens to you, you have to do what John did. And that's not to linger in your doubts, not to languish in them. Go to the one who can help you. And this is what John did. He trusted God enough to go to the right place to ask his questions. And so he went to Jesus and he sent word to him, tell me what's going on. Why are things like they are? And sometimes God does not deliver us from bad circumstances. And that may not be something that you want to hear. You don't like that answer. But God promises something better. He might not bring you out of the bad circumstances, but he does give you the peace to deal with it. And there's no one but a Christian that can really find that serenity, whether it's in the problems of life or it's death or hardships that we go through, sickness and disappointment. God brings peace to a Christian soul so that he can endure it. There is no promise in the Bible that there won't be troubles. It never says that. There's no promise that God says that he's going to fill up your bank account. And those that would propose to become Christians because they think it's a shortcut out of life's problems will be severely disappointed because that's not the way that God works. It's not that way, may not be that way, often it's not, 
But there is peace in this, that you have peace in your soul, that you're right with God. And life may be difficult right now, but a person who really understands the big picture and where they are in God's economy, then they see themselves at peace with God because they have the promise of eternal life, that there is a full treasure that's just waiting in the heavens for us. And best of all, the Bible tells us that we shall see God. And it says, he will be your God and you will be his people forever. And if you can't see beyond what's going on in this life, then you simply aren't ready for the next life. One of our members told me that he witnessed to a man that said, I refuse to believe. And he said, if I meet Jesus, he'll have some explaining to do. Well, we're the ones that need to do some explaining. The Apostle John told us this in First John. He said, if you don't believe the record of the Son of God, if you don't believe that that's true, what God says about his Son, then you call God a liar. We're the ones that will have some explaining to do. Why didn't you trust God? Why didn't you serve him? Why have you broken God's commandments? Now, thank God, though, those weren't John's doubts. He did trust, he did serve, and he did obey. And in his time of doubt, he sent word to the one he knew that could answer his questions. And so he didn't go to the History Channel or to the Discovery Channel to find out who Jesus is. He went to Jesus because he wanted to hear the words of God. Now, let's go a little bit deeper into John's dilemma. He doubted because of his circumstances, but he also doubted because of his misconceptions. He had misconceptions about what Jesus had come to do. Now, if you'll turn back in your Bible there to the third chapter of Matthew, we'll see where John the Baptist is preaching, and there's a description that he gives of the Messiah that's very revealing. This is in Matthew chapter 3. We'll start in verse number 9, and John is speaking to the Jews, and he's warning them, especially the Pharisees, that their descent from Abraham was not basis to assume that they were the children of God. I mean, just because they said they were Jews did not mean that they didn't need to repent of sin. So in Matthew chapter 3, beginning verse 9, John is preaching, and he says to them, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, of course, there he's talking about people that won't believe. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. That means those that are saved he will bring in, but he will burn up the chaff, those that are lost, with unquenchable fire." Now, in other words, what we see John preaching here is a Messiah that would bring judgment on unbelievers. And he thought that Jesus would do that immediately. So he was telling the people, you had better repent right now. You had better give up your sins. You had better confess those. You must bow yourself to the kingship of Jesus Christ because the kingdom is close. And the fires of hell are right now upon you. And that was the opinion of most Jews. It was the opinion of the disciples that when the Messiah came, 
that he would immediately do these things. And so they kept asking Jesus over and over. The disciples said to him, when will the kingdom start? When are you going to throw off this oppression? When are you going to bring righteousness over this entire earth? When will there be perfect peace? When will you do this? When is this going to happen? You have the power. And so now is the time for this. And you see, they had terrible misconceptions about what Jesus would do because they had no thoughts of a suffering Savior. They had no thoughts of a dying Messiah. And they looked into the Old Testament prophecies and read about this. And even though the Old Testament prophets said it, they missed it. We understand it much better now because we can look back down through history. We can see the entire record and we can read the Old Testament scriptures and we realize how this all works out. And so we read passages of scripture like Isaiah 53 in light of the crucifixion of Christ. We know the rest of the story and we see prophecy fulfilled. In Isaiah 53 it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. John the Baptist was up too close. John the Baptist had not seen the cross. He hadn't seen the resurrection. He was thrown into prison and beheaded before all of that happened. And so he couldn't see how this prophecy was fulfilled. There you see a suffering Savior. There you see the Son of God smitten and afflicted. But John couldn't see it. He was counting on the Messiah coming and fulfilling this scripture and ending oppression in this way, ending oppression right then. And then we can think about what John did see. John did not see judgment coming from Christ. That's what he was preaching. He was preaching about judgment, but he didn't see the Son of God cracking down on unbelief, and he didn't see him cracking people's heads. He saw no fire called down from heaven to destroy the enemies. Instead, he saw a much different Jesus. He saw a compassionate Savior. He saw one who was helping people, one who was healing people. William Hendrickson said it this way, John had pictured impending judgment, the axe already laid to the root of the trees. But words of grace were falling from Jesus' lips, and works of mercy were being performed by him. Yet what John had said was correct based on prophecy. However, he had not been able to distinguish between the first and the second coming. So he expected first coming fulfillments of second coming predictions. Now we learned in previous in a previous message that that the the prophets often prophesied events that were thousands of years apart and they would put them into the same passages. And so the prophets often didn't know and didn't understand what they prophesied. They wrote down what God told them. And when John read those very same prophecies, he had trouble. He didn't understand them either. He didn't understand that the Messiah would come and then he would come again. And so he was expecting a very different Messiah. And did you know, in a sense, people today expect a very much different Jesus than what he really is? They don't understand or they don't care to study what the Bible says about him. And so they've constructed a Jesus that's not at all like the one in the Scriptures. Their Jesus would never say, 
I came to divide families. And their Jesus wouldn't say, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. That's not their Jesus. They've got a second coming Jesus when we're actually living still in the first coming. That's where we are. And if they don't believe Jesus as he is now, you can, I can promise you this, they don't want to see Jesus when he comes again. Because make no mistake about this, we are talking about the very same Jesus, but we're talking about different purposes when he comes again. Now here, in this time that we're living in, Christ has called upon people to repent of their sins and to believe in him. And he promised that if people would repent and they would believe, that he will save them from their sins. And so he went to the cross to pay for sin. And right now, the Son of God is giving people time and space to repent. And he allows the gospel to be preached. And he graciously opens up his arms and he says, come to me. Come to me, all of you that are labor and you're you're heavy laden. Come to me and I'll give you rest. And God says to us, now is the time of salvation. Isaiah chapter 45 says, Look unto me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. That's a first coming gospel. There is salvation. Salvation is near to each and every one of us. It's right here in this building today. Salvation is near to us, but it's only near when you repent and believe. You must repent and believe in him. And you need to carefully note that the second coming of Christ is not the same. His second coming is not primarily the time of salvation. There's never going to be another cross. The second time that Jesus comes is a time of judgment. And so the second coming fits into John's message. When John said the axe is laid to the root of the trees and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, he was talking about a second coming Jesus. John didn't understand the timing. But there's no excuse for us. We have the completed revelation of God's word. We have all 66 books. We can read the Bible, and it's very clear what Jesus came to do and what he will do. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 5. Many places in Scripture where we can go to read about this, but John chapter 5 is really, really good because there's a passage here where Jesus combines first coming and second coming. We see the work of Jesus in his first coming, and in the very same passage, he tells us what will happen in the second coming. Now, in the first coming, the first advent, that's when he came as God incarnate. He was born in Bethlehem. He was inaugurated at his baptism to ministry. And then in verse number 24 is where it tells us about that, and then we'll continue reading on from there. In verse number 24 of John 5, Verily, verily, Jesus is speaking, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. And when we looked at these words, verily, verily, before a long time ago, to remember this is the intent for Jesus to sit up right now and listen to what he has to say, because what comes next is a very important point of doctrine. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but it's passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. 
For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now right there, those verses we've just read, that's about the first coming Jesus. That's the gospel ministry of Jesus. The dead, those that are dead in their trespasses and sin, they'll hear the voice of God. They'll hear the Holy Spirit calling them and the dead, those that are dead in their trespasses and sin, will hear the Holy Spirit and they will believe and they will be saved. That's first coming Jesus. But then he goes on with the second coming in verse 27. And hath given him authority, or God has given him authority also to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So there you have second coming Jesus. Now, if you have misconceptions about this, then the place to go, the place to get all of this cleared up and to get straight is right to the words of Jesus. He calls on us now to repent and believe. And if we do, he says, there's no judgment for you. There's no condemnation for you if you believe in me right now. If you trust me as Savior, there is no condemnation. But he says when he comes back the second time, he will come with judgment. And this is, as John the Baptist said, the time for him to purge his floor, to gather his wheat, all those that are saved and believers in him, to gather them into the barn and to burn up the chaff, the waste, the lost, with unquenchable fire. Folks, we do not want to misunderstand Jesus. Hear very clearly what Jesus says. Now, I'd like you to look at one more part of John's concern. Verse number 3 He says, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So thirdly, his doubts are because of his coming. So we have circumstances and misconception. Now thirdly, doubts about his coming. So John's question is, are you the coming one? And that's a very important phrase in Scripture because John is very clearly asking the question, are you the Messiah? In the Scriptures, the coming one refers to the Messiah. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is he, be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And that psalm was quoted as Jesus entered into Jerusalem just before the crucifixion, Matthew chapter 21, and the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the Messiah. Or if you prefer, he is the Christ. That's the Greek form. Both of those mean the same. The coming one, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah. Now Jesus very clearly explained who he was. And he brought out the big gun, so to speak, when he told people who he was. When he was witnessing to the Jews, he brought out the highest authority of the Jews and gave their testimony. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. That's in John 8:56. So he called on Abraham as a testimony to him. He called upon Moses, and beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Luke 24, verse 27. He called on David. David, therefore, himself calleth him Lord. That's what Jesus said in Mark 12, verse number 37. Now, John had doubts, but his doubts 
weren't that Jesus had done many wonderful works. He had no doubt about that. He'd seen that. He'd never seen anybody like Jesus. Nobody else ever had either. He didn't have any doubt that Jesus came from God. So what is his doubt? Well, his doubt is, is he the one that came from God? Is he the one or is he an intervening prophet before the Messiah? You see, John and others believed that there could be several intervening prophets that would come before the Messiah actually came. So this is John's question. This is why in John chapter 1, they asked John the Baptist. They asked him the very same question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Or are you Elijah? Or are you Jeremiah? Are you some prophet that has risen from the dead? Or are you, are you a new prophet? Just who are you, John? And that's really the thrust of John's question. He sent disciples to Jesus and he said, you're from God. We have no doubt that you are from God. But are you another prophet? Or, and are we still to look for the coming one? Are we still looking for the Messiah? And the Jews have that same question today. They still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They still don't understand about a suffering Messiah. They don't believe the New Testament, and so they have concluded that Jesus can't be anything other than a false Messiah. In Islam, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. They believe he was a prophet. And, and there are many Christians, sadly to say today, that think that Jesus was just a prophet. He was just a good man, a good example for us to live by. But he's not really the son of God. He's not God himself. And people that are Christians say that or call themselves Christians. John's question was very honest and open. He still believed in the coming one. He was just having doubts about whether Jesus was him. Is he just another prophet? So the doubts about the coming one were fed by his circumstances and the misconceptions that he had. Now, before I finish today, I want to remind you of this, that there are many people today that doubt the coming one. Many people misunderstand it. The coming one is coming a second time. Back in May, there was a false prophet who said that he knew something about the coming one. And you remember this, that he thought that he knew more than God knows about it. And so he was preaching that the world was going to end on May 21st. And he said, Jesus is coming back. Jesus will come on May 21st. And he purchased all these big billboards and all of that about the coming of Jesus. He said, Jesus will return on this date. Well, I found a picture of a billboard after that prediction failed. Dalton will show that to you. It's kind of a humorous thing there. On October 21st, the same prophet said, or he said that Jesus would come back October 21st. He missed May 21st. He said that was a getting people ready. That was a spiritual resurrection and all of that. So really, Jesus didn't come on May 21st, so he's coming October 21st. And that date passed as well. Well, that's a terrible misconception to think that you know more than the Word of God says. I mean, the Bible says we don't know the day or the hour that Jesus is coming. But we do know that he's coming. And the most serious mistake that anybody could make is to say that Jesus is not coming. And there are many people that say that. The apostle Peter said, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So people say, He won't come. 
And they say tomorrow is just another day, and the day after tomorrow will be just like tomorrow, and it's just another day. So you don't really need to concern yourself about the nonsense of this coming one. And I would be the first to admit to you that Jesus may not come before I die. He may not come before you die. Again, no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus will come, but you can be sure of this, that if he does not come, you will still meet the coming one. You're going to meet him. And if you haven't believed in him, then you can ask him all the questions that you want, and you're not going to like the answers that he gives. So here's John the Baptist, this great prophet. He found himself at a time of doubt. Things didn't work out the way that he planned. He had announced the Messiah, but he didn't see a conquering king. And he didn't see a crown. And he didn't see battle robes. And he didn't see the scepter of his king. None of that. He needed better understanding. He was willing to give up his own ministry, and I really truly believe this, that if he had understood this thing just a little bit better, if he was able to see things as we see them now, John the Baptist would never have asked this question. It was misconceptions and misunderstanding of all of that. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're in a circumstance that just does not seem to make sense. You were faithful. You stood by Christ in the good times. You were faithful with your good health. You were faithful when you had a job. You were faithful when you had money in the bank. But now there is a time of testing, and now your faith is ready to be proved. And some of you have been in that trial for quite some time. And the question is, can you hold out? And it's a question we all might need to ask ourselves because we all could be heading for the worst times that we've ever seen. The worst times economically, the worst times of persecution, I don't know. We could be headed for the worst times we'd ever seen. And we need to understand right now and evaluate our faith and see if it's the kind of faith that will hold out. Do we really trust God? Do we really have confidence in him? And those that don't fall out, those that don't fall away, it's true believers in Christ that will be here next Sunday, even if though there was a bomb dropped in the middle of, San Francisco. Maybe I pray for that one. Bomb dropped down there, and and uh, we'd still be here. We'd still be here because we trust God. We trust God that He's doing what's right. Will your faith hold out? Doubt was a temporary condition with John. He heard back from Jesus, and he he got the answer that he wanted. He received a good answer. He went to the right person to ask about his doubt, and Jesus calmed all those doubts. And John never asked again. And so as I ended the sermon last week, I'd ask you again today, have you gone to the right person to talk about your doubts? Um, You don't really need to complain to the person sitting next to you. And uh, the answer is not going to be found in mom or dad or brother or sister. The answer will be found in Jesus Christ and in his word. That's where you have to go to calm your doubts. Hear the words of God. He can answer all your doubts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence now and we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today. And Lord, we know that the gospel has been given, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You're the only one who can save us from our sins, the only one who can take us from heaven, the only one take us to heaven, the only one that can relieve the awful weight and guilt of sin that would cause us to die and go to hell forever. Only you can relieve us of that burden. Lord, I pray that 
you would speak to hearts today. Help us to trust you with everything that we have. Trust you with all of our heart, our might, our soul, our mind. And really believe that you are the real God who saves from sin. Speak to us today, Lord. Help us to understand your word better and to do what your word requires. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.